world's two religions. People say that there are many, many religions. There are really only two, and we're going to talk about them today. We do not have a thousand or two thousand or whatever number you may have read about. There are only two. And this passage of Scripture reveals this so very emphatically. Into the history of Genesis is now projected the terrible results of the fall, which we have already examined in detail. A brother rises up to kill his own brother. Now, what has been impressed upon me is how we can read through this passage of Scripture and just not even be touched by it. I said a brother rose up and killed his own brother. That is the result of the fall. They were in a garden originally, beautifully taken care of. Man had everything he needed, but because of disobedience was driven from that garden. An angel with a flaming sword stood at the entrance so they could not enter and outside of that garden, we begin to see the results of man's disobedience. I think one of the easier ways to understand it is to look at one of the statements of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. The 26th chapter and the 18th verse finds him before King Agrippa. He gives his personal testimony to the king and proceeds to share with Agrippa how God called him to be an apostle of the Lord's. And as he shares with him his call, he expresses it this way, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto the power of God. Those statements illustrate the world's two religions, darkness, light, Satan, God. Everything is summed up in those two. There are no more. This is not just some wild dream that Paul had following his conversion. It is an absolute picture of the conflict that we are in. Man was plunged into darkness. Jesus said in John 3.19 that men love darkness rather than light. This world is covered with darkness. You are in a conflict between darkness and light. I am in that same conflict. Peter declared in 1 Peter 2.9 that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world's two religions. I have three brothers. I am the next to the youngest the one just older than I am, is a missionary in Paraguay, South America. He has spent many years of his life in ministry to the Maca Indian tribe 
across the Paraguayan River outside of the capital city of Asuncion. This is a savage tribe. They had nothing in writing of their language. My brother built a cabin, moved his family in, listened to them, began to write down their language, wrote primers, taught them to read, has translated portions of scripture so that he could relay to them the message of the gospel. My brother wrote for a missions magazine the following story that I want to use as an illustration of this truth in Genesis 4. Maldonado had a three-year-old daughter very ill with tuberculosis. Her condition grew worse, and Unai was branded as the source of the problem. Unai had shouted in a fit of rage, I'll get two of you. Unai dealt in spirits, and that could mean but one thing when he shouted, I'll get two of you. He meant he was going to eat two members of the tribe. They eat human flesh like you eat cow's meat, the article explained. There was but one thing to do. That was to kill Unai. He was maneuvered to a chicha party, prepared especially for him by Sosa, the mastermind in the plot. Maldonado was seated to Unai's right, his long, sharp knife carefully concealed beneath his shirt. At a given signal, Maldonado whirled, plunging home his knife. Unai jumped to his feet with the knife protruding from his back. Six other men quickly were upon him, smashing him with shovels and clubs. His body was dumped on a deserted piece of land to be eaten by the vultures. The next day, Sosa told my brother that Maldonado's little girl had instantly improved when Unai was killed. A week later, however, the child died. It was six months before the real truth came out. Assisi, the girl's mother, had taken a club and debrained the girl in a fit of hysteria as she battled the ghost of Unai, which had come to claim its victim. You say, Pastor, that's gross. I agree. But my brother's article was titled, We're a Happy Lot. He based it on the statements of some very, very foolish people. For there are people who say, as they speak of primitive man, primitive man is in perfect harmony with nature. They are happy. Leave them alone. Why be concerned about them? They're happy. His article, again titled, We're a Happy Lot. A chief told my brother that during an outbreak of smallpox, many of their people died because there was not enough medicine to go around. The medicine? 
mule urine. The treatment was one big drink. Repulsive, yes, but the true condition of man apart from God. I have tried, I have tried to get you to understand this before with nice language and beautiful stories. But it doesn't get through. Because some still play around with drugs. Some still play around with alcohol and immorality. The only difference is you have clothes on. The only difference is you come to church or you sit watching in a comfortable living room. Not like you and I or Maldonado or Assisi or whoever out there in the jungle. Last night when I got home, I picked up the March issue of the Reader's Digest. I noticed that the book section of the March issue was about Theodore Bundy. When I was in the Northwest, his name was in the paper often because there were so many missing co-eds or skeletal remains discovered in the mountains of the Northwest, and finally it was linked to Theodore Bundy, a man with college degrees. They got him twice and put him in jail, and he escaped both times and went to Florida and killed more, one being a 12-year-old girl. When the article came to its conclusion, the horrible facts are these, that Theodore Bundy doesn't really know how many he mutilated and did away with, but at least 100. At least. So those who say, don't bother them, keep your gospel within the walls of your church. Do not understand the battle that we are in. I will die proclaiming two facts. There is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to avoid. And my dear friend, you are either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell. It's that simple. There are only two religions, the religion of the lost and the religion of the saved, the religion of darkness and the religion of light. And it's all summed up in this account of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Abel depended on the blood and his offering was received. Cain depended on his good works, man-pleasing religion, ceremony, and program, and his offering was rejected, because it is not by works of righteousness which we have done that we are saved, but according to his mercy. Now, there are three things in my message today you've got to get. And I must admit, this is not the most pleasant message in the Bible to preach. But it's here, and we have to proclaim it. The first thing I learned from Cain and Abel's story in Genesis 4 is that sin 
begins in a small way. Never changes. Always begins in a small way. James tells us in his little epistle to the church, verses 14 and 15 of the first chapter that bears his name, every man is tempted. Isn't that encouraging? I love that. Every man is tempted. I say, thank you for telling me, Lord. I wondered if I was odd, something was wrong with me. Every man is tempted. Then he goes on to say he's tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth that. It's a progression. It starts small. Now notice in verse 6 of Genesis 4, we read it, but I'm sure you didn't get this impact. Look at it. Verse 6 says that Cain was angry. Indicator number one. He was angry. And then it says he had a fallen countenance. Why is your face fallen? Self-pity was setting in. Why is your face so dark with rage? Living Bible says it can be bright with joy. God warned Cain that sin was crouching at the door. God warned him of that. Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Some translations or paraphrases of that statement are as follows. If you misbehave, sin is crouching at the door. Its intention is toward you, and you must master it. The living Bible, sin is waiting to attack you, longing to destroy you, but you can conquer it. Revised Standard Version, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is couching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see what happened? Cain fed the wild beast of temptation. Then he opened the door and let him in. How foolish for us to do that. To feed the beast that is tempting us and then open the door and let him in to our house. He invited his brother out to the field for conversation. And when he was alone with his brother, the anger that was noted earlier rose up within him. And he slew his own brother and buried him in the field. In chapter 3, man sins against God in disobedience. In chapter 4, man sins against man. And isn't that the way it goes? I guess it wouldn't be so bad if it just affected me, but it affects everyone around me when I'm out of step with God. And so we live in a sinful environment and we are affected by that environment as we see by the way Cain treated his brother. The progress of that sin has become very obvious in history. Have you ever read accounts of Adolf Hitler? Interesting to me to read in those biographies about this man that when he was very young, he had fits of anger often. And those fits were uncontrolled. Nobody brought him under 
jurisdiction. No wonder when he grew to be a man, he said about an entire race of people in anger, wipe them out. Don't let a one live. Mark them and remove them. Started when he was a boy with fits of anger. I look around today and sense the governments of this world are in darkness. There's a light attitude of sin in government, in legislative halls, in Congress halls. We pass laws which favor those who are propagating sin and unrighteousness. In darkness we move to establish things that hurt and maim and destroy. Why? Because of the world's two religions, a battle between darkness and light, righteousness and unrighteousness. It's that simple. And you're affected and I'm affected. In my own profession, that of the ministry which I try to guard with every ounce of my being, the same thing holds true. A pastor friend that I had made acquaintance with, we fellowshiped together because of the smallness of his church and their inability to support him full-time. He took a school bus driving job. And every day he stopped at a certain corner to pick up two little boys who were brought to that corner by their mother. She waited until the bus picked them up every morning. This pastor friend observed this mother morning by morning. The observation next turned to counseling because of the brokenness of her home and life. And the counseling led to infatuation. And this man, who was almost twice her senior, divorced his wife of over 20 years, left his family, left his church, and moved in with her. You talk about a sick feeling. My profession is not exempt from that kind of possibility. I put my feet in my pants legs just like you men did this morning in case you didn't know that. We're all faced with that same big question, who am I going to follow? What voice will I hear in my heart? Will I let that beast of temptation be fed outside my door and then swing the door widely open and let him come in to devour? Or will I keep him away in the name of the Lord? The religion of Cain is one of self-righteousness. 1 John 3.12 indicates that Cain was a child of the devil. He had a false righteousness of the flesh, not the righteousness of God through faith. There's the problem. We depend on ourselves. And I want to speak to many of you who have known the Lord, some for many years, but you are depending on yourself. This message is for you today. You have said, I don't need times of prayer regularly in my life. I don't need the Bible study. I don't need to fast and pray on Wednesday night. I've got things going. My business is doing pretty good. My family is functioning all right. That is self-righteousness, and that's the problem that Cain had. And it will lead you to destruction. 
You've got to come back to a place of relationship that demands the covering of the blood. On a daily basis, I cannot survive without him. I cannot make it without him. I must have the sacrifice of Abel every day in my life. For I'm in the trap of Satan. Always begins small. And then grows and grows until it envelops us. Second thing I learn in this passage of Scripture is that sin always finds us out. Now, I didn't have to read this story to discover that. I discovered it when I was young. I won't tell you some of the ways I found it out. It's embarrassing. Where is Abel thy brother? Who said that? Cain thought he was all alone out there. Suddenly a voice. Where is Abel, thy brother? It was just like the voice in the garden. Adam, where art thou? Sin always finds us out, even though we try to bury it in the ground. Notice the next question. What hast thou done? It's like the young fellow who was given the bean seeds to plant by his father. He got tired of planting and walked over in the corner of the field, dug a big hole and dumped all the seeds in, went in and said he finished planting the seeds. Everything was okay for a few weeks. The blood of Abel was crying from the ground. You remember Pilate in the New Testament after he sentenced Jesus? The Bible says he asked for a basin to wash his hands. What was he trying to wash off? The blood of Jesus. And historians tell us that Pilate continued to wash his hands until he became a raving maniac and died insane trying to wash the blood of Jesus off of his hands. Be sure your sin will find you out. God had cursed the serpent, the ground. Now he curses Cain. The living Bible says you are hereby banished from this ground which you have defiled with your brother's blood. No longer will it yield crops for you even if you toil on it forever. From now on you will be a fugitive and a tramp upon the earth wandering from place to place. Like his parents before him, Cain blames God. Verse 14, thou hast driven me out. Blamed it on God. Aren't we like that? We can find a thousand excuses not to live the way we're supposed to live, not to do the thing we're supposed to do. If it's not our wife, we blame it on, or our boss will blame it on God. Thou hast driven me out. Incredible. Cain didn't repent of his sin. He showed remorse. He showed despair, but he did not repent, which is the problem with most of us who struggle and struggle in our relationship with God. We refuse to turn and walk away, leaving the sin and the lust behind us. I want to encourage you today to turn it all over to God, whatever you brought to church with you. Your sin will always find you out. Whatever it is, come clean with God today. That's the admonition of this passage of Scripture. God is saying to you from history, 
Don't try to hide from me. I know where you are. Come clean with me. Be honest with me. And let my power flow into your life. If you'll just be honest with me, it'll happen. Don't be a schemer and a conniver. Be open and above board with me. Judgment must begin at the house of God, Peter said. Before we can see what God wants to do in this city, judgment must begin in these seats, upstairs, downstairs, on this platform. We must be right with God, honest with God, forgiven by God. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Let it happen today. Have a strange sense that there's more to what I'm saying than even I know. That some of you are in the balance, being weighed by God like Belshazzar of old. You're about to tip the scale, and you need to let God know that you're going to go His way, not your way, not Satan's way, not the way of the flesh, not the way of self-righteousness, but the way of the blood. Let him know that today. Whoever you are, whatever the need. The well-laid plots of television always have their flaw. I'm amazed so many times how these plots find their way through a program. The instigator of the crime gets caught all the time. We had to wait a long time for the fugitive situation to develop, but it finally developed, and they got their man. I'm amazed many times at the almost perfectness of the crime, but one little slip-up, a piece of paper, a pair of sunglasses, some little, little, little clue, which turns the man in the white hat to figure out who is in the black hat. I was flipping the dial one night, and I, I don't watch TV much at all. And I probably was looking for some news when there was a program on as I flipped the dial, and what stopped me was that it was about a preacher. And Kirk Douglas was the preacher. I thought that was unique. And as I watched... I suddenly discovered that the preacher was the bad guy. That infuriated me. And I thought, how will this ever be discovered in this story? He was killing the people. In the garb of the preacher, and the way he did it was, he had a Bible, unique Bible, that was hollowed out in the middle, and he had a derringer in the middle of the Bible, buried in the Bible. And when the opponent had him a gunpoint, every time he'd say, oh, let me read a little from the good book before you wipe me out. Well, of course, he would always get that opportunity. So he would open the good book and put his hand on the good book and lift out the derringer. Bam! Get back on his horse, ride into town. Nobody ever knew the difference. The preacher... Well, here's this fellow who suspects him for some reason, doesn't feel comfortable with him, 
and he's about ready to do him in. And he pulls this again. Oh, let me read a little from the good book first. So he opens it up. Ah, are you listening? Here it is. The fellow on the other side with his gun in his holster. Notice, suddenly, the book was upside down. Whoa! Bam! Got him. The credits come floating across the screen. The preacher lies in death with his open Bible laying on top of him. Hewn out for a derringer. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> you can learn so much as you move through life to use in preaching. You have to keep your eyes open for everything. It all has purpose. It all says something. And it said to me, Ha ha! Your sin will find you out some way, even though it took two hours. <laughs> Finally happened. Cain heard the voice of God. Where is Abel, thy brother? Give it to God in sincerity today. Don't face him in judgment. Face him in mercy and in grace today. Final point. Sin always has its remedy. There must have been a definite place for worship in the beginning. I want you to catch this. Both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. Where did they learn that? God must have talked to them about bringing offerings. Hebrews 11.4 teaches that Abel brought his offering by faith. It says that. Abel brought his offering by faith. Romans 10.17 says faith comes by hearing. So he must have heard. And Abel brought his offering by faith. God must have taught the first family the importance of blood sacrifice. In chapter 3, verse 21, we saw this also. In Hebrews 9:21, there is the statement that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. God taught them that. Cain brought a bloodless offering from the cursed earth. It may have been sincere, but it was not accepted. It cost him nothing. God gave the sunshine. God gave the earth. God gave the seed. It cost him nothing. There was no faith in what God had spoken to him in his sacrifice. Therefore, it was not accepted. Jude 11 talks about the way of Cain, which is the way of religion without blood, religion based on religious good works and self-righteousness. There are only two religions in the world, that of Abel that depends on the blood and that of Cain that depends on good works and man-pleasing religious ceremonies. Cain's religion, destitute of any adequate sense of sin or need of atonement, just going through the motions. Cain's religion worships in self-will. Cain's religion refuses to bring a sin offering. Cain's religion lies to God. Abel's religion confesses his sin, 
brings a blood sacrifice, expresses his faith. By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain acknowledged God as the source of all natural good, but rejected his revealed way of worship. In Cain began all false religion, man coming to God in his own way. That's the one religion versus the blood religion. And there's no in-between, no gray area. We're either coming to God like Cain came or like Abel came. How are you coming? I wish I had time to carry this all through history. Cain married one of his sisters. Where did Cain get his wife? He married one of his sisters. This before sin had taken its great toll on the human body. People lived long in those days. They could marry that way and not be physically affected. Can't happen today because of sin that is in the world, the weakness of the human frame. But he married his sister. He built a great city and called it Nod, which means to stray or to wander. In a sense, the descendants of Cain were an admirable lot. We read that Jabel brought about the science of agriculture. Jubal brought the science of music. Tubal Cain, the metal industries. Civilization today is Cainite in nature. It has agriculture, industry, arts, great cities. But like the Cainite civilization of old, it will be destroyed. It's not pleasing to God. The Babylon of Revelation will come down. The Cainite civilization may have been as splendid as that of Greece and Rome, but the divine judgment is according to the moral state, not the material state. That's the story of Cain. He said to God, God, everyone that finds me will want to kill me now. But have you noticed how God treated Cain at that point? God said, Cain, I'm going to protect you. Isn't that marvelous? Oh, the grace of God. After all of this, and after God saying that he would be like a fugitive and be marked, he comes along at his complaint. When he says, they're all going to want to kill me, God says, no, Cain, I'm going to protect you. I'll put a hedge around you. So Cain walked out from the presence of God, a living sermon of the grace and the mercy of God, with God's protection and God's covering. What a picture of mankind today, restless, hopeless, wandering, defeated but a God who earnestly reaches out and says, Oh, won't you come to me? I'd like to protect you and preserve you and save you. Lamech took two wives, verse 19, descendant of Cain, desecrated the laws of marriage, took two wives. That's where it all got started. Then in verse 23, boasted of murder. But the chapter ends in victory. For God gave to Adam and Eve another seed. They called him Seth, which means the substitute. And in the last of chapter 4, the Sethites call on the name of the Lord. The Canaanites are gradually wandering away until the flood destroyed them, the Sethites. 
called on the name of the Lord. Two religions. You'll go to the flood or you'll go to prayer. You'll go to destruction or you'll go to your knees and acknowledge that God is God and that you need him and cannot proceed without him. The Bible says Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. I'm going to take that. I'm not going to trust in Glenn Cole. I'm going to trust in Jesus who bore my sins in his own body on the tree. I'm going to take his way, not man's way. My wife is a very talented individual. She can tell children's stories very well and has done it many times. And I have heard her tell a certain story with flannel material several times of a young boy who was caught in a flaming building when a man passed by, noticing him up in the window, crying out. And the man passing by could not reject the cry of that young boy, ran into that burning inferno, pulled the boy out to safety, but at great cost to himself, he was tragically burned in the face and the arms, scarred for life. And after his healing, as he moved around, the community people would make fun of his scars and his ugliness, except one. The boy said, I'm proud of those scars. Because of those scars, I am alive. I'm saved. I'm well. I'm thankful those ugly scars. Neighbor, long ago one went into a burning inferno for you. And he bears the scars and the marks of it in eternity. I hope you're not ashamed of those scars. For they're your ticket to eternal life. There is a way that leads to God and there's a way that leads to destruction. Come to the one who was scarred for you. Blood sacrifice was required and he did it. We might be whole. Let's run to the cross. Let's run to Calvary where the blood still flows for the cleansing of our sins. Would you bow your heads, please?